Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor. Welcome. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And uh, delighted to have you in worship with us this morning. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke. As you probably know, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Gospels being more or less the, the lives of Jesus, four different accounts of Jesus' life and his ministry. Not all of the four Gospels give us a Christmas story. Actually, uh, it's the Gospel of Luke that we find the birth of Jesus told in its greatest detail. This is the passage in Luke chapter 2, I think, where Linus speaks in Charlie Brown's Christmas every year, the, the most famous passage about Christmas. Uh, just remember a few things, though. The Gospel of Luke is written by a man named Luke who himself was not an eyewitness to everything that he writes about. That, that wasn't uh, one of the things he was blessed to be. But Luke wanted to write a very, very careful history of Jesus. If we flip back to Luke chapter 1 and read the first verses there, he writes an introduction to his gospel. And one of the things that he says that he's tried to do is talk to eyewitnesses. He may not have witnessed all of these things himself, but he wanted to talk to those who had. And so he sought out eyewitnesses to tell different parts of the story, and he's included their accounts in his one historical account. From reading the Gospel of Luke, one of the beautiful things that you can discover is that one of his sources was obviously Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, obviously, one of the people that Luke sought out, an eyewitness, was Mary, the mother of Jesus. She had stories to tell that nobody else could tell. And that's why Luke has these stories. He must have gotten them from Mary. And you'll notice at the end of one of those stories that only Mary could tell, Luke will include a little tagline that says, now Mary remembered this. Mary kept this. She treasured it in her heart. That's the giveaway that he's just told a story that was given to him from Mary herself. Today's story, Luke chapter 2, verse 41. This is one of those stories that Mary, of course, was there, and, and somebody like Mary or Joseph would have had to tell the story to Luke because uh, only they were there. It's an eyewitness account, and we uh, can figure that this is a story that Mary told. It's one thing to talk about Christmas and Jesus being born as a baby in a manger. We hardly think about what it would be like for Jesus to grow up. But Jesus lived a normal human life. He grew up. He was once a baby, but after that, a toddler, a, a child, a, a middle schooler. In this case, a 12-year-old boy. He grew right on through his teenage years. Jesus lived an ordinary, ordinary, but extraordinary life. And we'll look at just a piece of it this morning. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. The only story we have in Scripture that talks about Jesus as a boy, uh, listen and, and follow his example. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Stop right there. That was a Jewish custom. It was always expected that you would try to get to Jerusalem for the high holy days. And Passover was one of the highest, holiest days for the Jews. So obviously, Jesus is raised in a very devout, very Jewish family, and they go to Jerusalem every Passover. Verse 42. When Jesus was 12, uh, 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth. Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first. Stop right there. Are, are these really bad parents? I'm parents of the year here. Uh, they've got Jesus, Son of God, in their household, and they can't keep up with him. This sounds like my parents. Uh, they've lost him, absolutely lost him. But understand, he's 12 years old. He's 12, which means he's not quite a child, not quite a man. He's in between. A 12-year-old boy could have decided whether or not he wanted to stay with the children and the women 
or the men. And in these days, women and men would travel in the same caravan, but always separately. So Joseph probably assumed that Jesus is with Mary and the women and the children, while Mary assumes that Jesus must be somewhere in the caravan with the men. They both probably assume that he's with the others. So it's not that they're bad parents. Anybody could have done this, but let's follow the story. His parents didn't miss him at first, verse 44, because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, child, why have you done this to us? Your father and I, watch that phrase, your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. Her words here, we've been looking for you in pain. Your father and I have been frantic. Verse 49, but why did you need to search, Jesus asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? You see what happened there in those two verses? Mary says, your father and I have been worried sick. And Jesus says, didn't you know that I must be in, say the word, my father's house. Interesting. But they didn't understand what he meant. Then Jesus returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. I love that. Jesus grew. It's a 12-year-old boy. Uh, just to get it in your head and to celebrate what it means to be 12. How many of you in this house? Do you have any 12-year-old young men, 12-year-old young women? Anybody 12 in the house? Nobody? Wow, that's amazing. Uh, let me ask you this question. Is anybody 12 in that back row? Y'all hiding? 12? No? Uh, almost 12. Okay, here's the big question. Ah, uh, 12. Yeah, it's awesome to be 12. Let's hear it for her. You're 12 years old. That's awesome. Yeah. 12 is amazing. It's a great age to be just absolutely. How old are you, Stephen? 11, almost 12. You're 12? Hey, way to go, Stephen. 12 years old. That's awesome. Awesome to be 12, and, and it's wonderful. I'm not taking anything away from it, but let me ask the rest of you a question. How many of you would be 12 again? If you could go back, you'd like to be 12 again. Your hands? Yeah. Yeah, not very many of you. And those of you with your hands up, I have to say, I don't think you remember very well what it, what it was to be 12. Do you remember being 12? Oh, my goodness. When I was 12 years old, I was just at the pinnacle of my dorkness. I was just the biggest dork ever at, at 12 years old. And so were you. That's the point. But it's at 12 years old when it first starts dawning on you that, that my goodness, uh, it, it gets awkward. And you get very, very self Conscious. Do you remember at 12, you start trying to figure out who you are? Um, I remember being 12, I went to Rich Pond School. I had a lot of friends. I went to Rich Pond all the way through eighth grade. Most of you did back in, in those days. I, I was just a different kind of kid. And again, I didn't realize that until about that age. And one of the things I realized very quickly was that I was really not a sports guy. And again, at 12 years old, as a boy, it's important to prove yourself a man. But I had no sports ability or knowledge to, to, to prove it with. It, it was difficult in those days. One day, Suki Shreve, she was a girl in my class. She was really cute. Suki Shreve was her name. Suki said, Tim, who are you for in the Super Bowl? 
don't ever ask me that question. I mean, I have, I, I have a vague knowledge that it's football related, but that's about it. And, and, and at 12 years old, I had no idea, but I didn't want to say that. She was exposing me as the wimp that I was. I, I just, she said, who are you for in the Super Bowl? I said, all of them, <laughs> for all of them. She said, you don't know anything about football, do you? You're the only boy at Rich Pond School that doesn't know anything about football. And is that true? Is that possibly true? At 12 years old, I assumed it was true. I felt horrible about that. So I started trying to prove her wrong. In my head, I'm thinking, okay, football. Think of something about football to say here. Think of something. Think about something. And finally, I remembered that a couple of weeks ago at the Hutch's Hut in Franklin, I had ordered a slush And the slush was served to me in a football helmet. And I started thinking, whose team was that? It was a team helmet. Whose team? Whose team? And finally I said, I love the Minnesota Vikings. That's what I said. I love the Minnesota Vikings. I didn't know anything about the Minnesota Vikings except I had eaten the slush out of the helmet. That's all I knew. She said, you don't even know who's playing in the Super Bowl, do you? I said, "Uh, well, probably I do. I mean, I I didn't want to say I don't know. I didn't want to say it 12 years old. I don't know. Finally, she said, well, I'm for the Cowboys. Suki said, I'm for the Cowboys. This was probably like 1978. I'm for the Cowboys. I said, well, who's not for the Cowboys? I love the Cowboys. Started acting like I was for the Cowboys. At the end of the day, I decided I will watch the Super Bowl. I will come back in Monday, and I will know everything, everything. Folks, I tried. I couldn't make it through the Super Bowl. Not then, not now, not ever. I just can't make it. I'm missing that chromosome. It it, it doesn't do anything for me. I watched just enough, though, just enough so I'd have something to say to Sookie Shreve on Monday. So I walked in on Monday and said, Woo, how about those Cowboys? The Cowboys won, I think. The Cowboys won. Woo, what about those Cowboys? She said, did you watch the Super Bowl? I said, did I watch the Super Bowl? Did I watch the Super Bowl? Those Cowboys are awesome. And that Roger Starbright, man, he is awesome. He's an awesome football passer and and an awesome football tackler, man, all that stuff. Roger, man, he's star bright. He's awesome. Sookie said, you are so dumb. (laughs) Man, I was dumb. I I, I just, (laughs) where did that come from? And why? (laughs) Photo evidence, folks. Yeah. At 12 years old, I changed my name once. I changed my name in the first year of the first day of sixth grade, actually, because I was tired of being me, and I was still figuring out who I was. Obviously not the the sports guy. Obviously not that guy. So I tried to figure out who to be. I just decided to change my name, make a break, and be somebody all new. Did you ever do that? So my new name in sixth grade was Keith Lockwood. That's the name I chose. Isn't that, stop a minute. Wouldn't that be awesome? Your pastor today could be Dr. Keith Lockwood if it had worked out. It just didn't work out. I was Keith Lockwood, Ms. Bull, Mary Bull in, in Ritzbond School, sixth grade. Uh, Ms. Bull got my paper and I'd written Keith Lockwood at the top. Ms. Bull said, who is Keith Lockwood? <laughs> Raised my hand. She said, Tim Harris, would you get up here and erase that name off of your paper? Yeah. Yeah, man, do you remember being 12 years old? Do you remember that? Trying to figure out who you are? It, it's, it becomes your full-time job. Any of you on Facebook these days, if you've got young friends on Facebook, you'll notice they change their profile picture like a thousand times a week. They keep changing their profile picture. You go in there today, and you'll have a kid, and he'll have a cowboy hat on. 
And then tomorrow you'll go back on and he'll have on a football helmet if it's a girl. One day she'll have curly hair. The next day, new picture, she'll have straight hair. The next day she'll have her picture off and Taylor Swift will be on there. It's what kids do. It's a normal thing for kids. Kids have this need to figure out who they are because honestly they don't know For a long time, as a kid, you just figure out who you are based on who your parents are. And for a long, long time, that works. I have a 15-year-old son now, and when my kid was small, I could keep him under control just by saying, Wade, we don't do that. Our family, we don't say those words, Wade. Our family, we don't talk like that. We don't do that. Our family, we go to church. I would teach them these things. This is what our family does. When a child is small... That's powerful because they very much want to belong and be like the family. But at about 12 years old, something blows that to pieces. Kid goes to the mall. He's going to the mall. He's dressed in the the clothes his grandma got him for his birthday, you know. But he goes to the mall one day and he opens his eyes and he sees other kids. He'll see kids all dressed in black with long black hair and something pierced and and black nail polish. And that 12-year-old boy will go home and say, Daddy, I want to paint my nails black. And the dad will say, why do you want to paint your nails black? And what will the kids say? I want to be different. Different. You're just like every other kid in the mall with black fingernails. But somehow for that kid, it's that need to be different. Different from who? Mostly dad. Mostly the parents, they have this desire to separate from the parents. I don't understand it, but you know, at some point, there was some kid who decided to be cool to wear his britches way down here. Y'all seen it now? And then all the kids in the world, all the guys wanted to let their pants slouch down below their backside. Have you seen that? Isn't that the funniest, goofiest thing? And they don't even know it's goofy. Have you seen them walking around the mall or wherever, and they got stuff in their arms, and they start losing their pants? Have you seen that? And then they start trying to, trying to keep them on and, and walk with their pants hanging off. That is so crazy. But the kids think it's cool. Why do they think it's cool? Because their parents would never do that. They love it quite a bit simply because we don't like it very much at all. They love to be different. And that's what they say. I want to be different. But they're just like every other moron with his pants around his knees. You see? But it's being different from the parents. That is what lights them up. That, that need to be different. You know how we could kill that whole thing real quickly? You know how we could kill it and make the boys want to pull their pants up? Just one Sunday, all of us grown men, just one Sunday, me, Frank, Warren, Andrew, if we just came in with our britches down here, every kid in the world would pull them up. Yeah, we could suck all the cool right out of that. It's that need to be different that's important. That's normal. It's normal. You did it when you were 12. Your 12-year-old's going to do it. Your teenager's going to do it. They're figuring out who they are. That's normal. The question is, was Jesus a normal 12-year-old boy? Was he a normal boy like that? Yes. Yes. Jesus was a normal 12-year-old boy. Now, we've got to to condition this in several ways. But the first thing you've got to understand, Jesus was a fully human, ordinary boy. 
He was. He was born in a manger. You know that story. But he grew. And Scripture says he grew. And that's a rather fascinating thing. That little baby grew. He grew in knowledge, which means he learned things. He grew in knowledge. He grew in stature, which means he grew taller and taller and taller, just like your parents are watching you do today. He grew in favor. He grew in grace. Jesus was an ordinary 12-year-old boy. It's one of the most important parts of the gospel, the most important facts of our faith, that Jesus was fully human. When God took on flesh and stepped out of heaven and came and was born in a manger, he was a completely total, ordinary human being, a human baby. There was nothing special. He did not glow in the dark. The song says he didn't cry, but of course he cried. He was a baby. He cried, he burped, he filled his diaper. He did everything that babies do. He was an ordinary human baby, and he grew, and he lived an ordinary human life. It's very, very important that you affirm this because he lived the life that you and I must live He suffered everything that we suffered. He ate too much pizza, I'm sure sometimes, and then got the stomach ache. He got the stomach virus. He probably had mumps and chicken pox. There's nothing that says he wouldn't have suffered everything we have suffered. He endured every temptation that you and I have ever endured, except one thing. Jesus never, ever sinned. Jesus never sinned, not once in his life, not one moment in his life. He was never disobedient. He never failed to love. He never lost his patience. He never failed to forgive. Jesus never sinned. Which means at the same time that you affirm that he was a fully human being, an ordinary human being, you've got to also say at the very same time he was fully divine, fully God. All at the same time, it's difficult to hold together. It's impossible to comprehend, but it is essential to our faith that you understand that this one was fully human and fully divine, absolutely at the same time. Fully God, fully man, and in this case, fully 12-year-old boy, ordinary, but the Son of God. When it says that he grew in wisdom, I don't even understand what that means. How can the Son of God learn stuff? But he does. Philippians chapter 2 says that that he was from eternity with God, but thought it not appropriate to cling to everything that belonged to him as God. So he emptied himself, the scripture says. Everything pertaining to his deity, to his divinity, he laid it aside so that he could be born and live a fully human life. He's just as human as you and me so that he could be our savior. That's what the scriptures say. Fully God, fully human. We know that in eternity, God is omniscient, which means all-knowing and and omnipotent, all-powerful. But he laid aside his power and he laid aside his omniscience in order to be born a, a human baby. So that baby in the manger did not know everything, no more than any other baby. And Jesus growing up, he grew in wisdom. That's what scriptures say. He grew in wisdom. He learned stuff. I don't understand that. I can't explain it to you. It's just what the scriptures tell us. He, he learned stuff. He grew. He figured out who he was. I don't know how that would have happened either. Obviously, a baby in a manger knows nothing, nothing other than to, to want to eat and to want to sleep. But somehow growing up, 
Jesus must discover, must realize who he is. I don't know if, if God the Father reveals that to him in one moment, in one magic moment, or I don't know if over time it, it, it is something that develops. But somewhere between birth and 12 years old, Jesus, Jesus must somehow get in touch with who he is, who he really is, and he does that. Now, I told you that's every 12-year-old's job. It's every 12-year-old, every teenager's job to figure out who they are. And most of us growing up, we look to our parents or we look to a peer group. We look to other kids. We look to other people to tell us who we are. We look to other people to figure out the kind of person that we're going to be. Am I going to be the sports guy? Am I going to be the preacher? We look to others to confirm that for us. But notice what Jesus does. Notice what Jesus does. It was the family's custom. It was a Jewish custom always to go to the temple, to go to Jerusalem for Passover. No matter where you lived and no matter how difficult the journey, you did everything you could to be in Jerusalem for Passover. That was the religious custom. It was also the holiday. Just coming off of Christmas, you maybe understand some of this or you're in touch with, with what this is like. Passover was a holiday, a holy day, just like Christmas is for us, with all kinds of traditions and all kinds of customs, and they're wonderful. And part of that custom is loading up the station wagon and driving to Jerusalem. That's part of the custom for everybody. It was about family. It was about food. It was about traveling. It was a lot like the Christmas you've just come off of. And when Passover was over, it was over, and everybody got back in their caravan, got back in the station wagon, and everybody went home. That was the custom. It was a religious custom, but at the same time, you got to recognize that a lot of people just probably went through the motions, just like the Christmas you've just endured. Lots of people go through it, but they don't really understand what it's about. They may talk a lot about Jesus, but that doesn't mean they ever worship or actually adore or speak to him. It's the amazing thing about Jesus. He goes to Jerusalem for the Passover, and it's his 12th year. Let's stop right there. Understand something. If you know anything about the Jewish faith, you probably know that the age of 13 is a very important age, an important year for the young men and women. At the age 13, a young man can become a bar mitzvah. It's called bar mitzvah. It's Hebrew for the son of the commandment. Son of the commandment. At 13, a Jewish boy is brought into the Jewish family. At 13, he's recognized to be a man. He's recognized to be a true son of the law, son of the commandment, a true son of God in the Jewish thinking. And so that year before he turned 13, that 12th year was to be a year of preparation. He was to be studying and learning everything that he needed to know in order to be a full-fledged son of the commandment. So this is not insignificant that it's here when Jesus is 12, that year of preparation before he becomes a full-blown son of the Jewish faith. He should be learning. He should be attending to his studies. And so it shouldn't be any surprise that Jesus himself, during this Passover, finds a circle of learners, a circle of disciples. He puts himself in the middle of a group of people who love God's word and are going to talk about it. 
That's what Jesus does. I don't know what everybody else does that Passover, but this is what Jesus does. He goes and he finds a circle. In those days, the rabbis would be at the temple. The teachers would be there. And they would have a circle of disciples. The word disciple just means learner. They would have a circle of disciples around them. And the rabbis would teach with a very interesting method of simply questions and answers. The rabbis would ask questions and the disciples would answer. Sometimes the disciples would ask questions. And it was this marvelous, lively exchange of questions and answers. And that's where 12-year-old Jesus planted himself. And when the Passover holiday was over, when it was time for everybody to go home, when everybody else had had enough, that's where Jesus stayed. When you think about being young, you think about a teenager, you think about coming into your own, lots of times we express that through what we call rebellion. Kids rebel. Some of us rebel less than others, but I'm telling you, it's a kid's full-time job to rebel. It's a kid's full-time job to kick back, to define himself or herself over and against the parents and over against what they've learned. It's just a kid's way to rebel, to figure out who they're going to be. And I want you to understand, Jesus rebels too. In the most beautiful way, in the most perfect way in this story, you see Jesus rebelling, but he doesn't sin. He's not disobedient. He rebels in the way that all of us should rebel today. What does he rebel against? Jesus rebels against the typical kind of, of, of religion. Jesus rebels against that typical way that most of us are religious, but only to a point. Do you understand? Mary and Joseph and all of the relatives, they came to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they celebrated, and they worshiped, and they did everything they were supposed to do according to the custom, and when it was over, it was over. They went home. They'd had enough. Kind of like Christmas is over, and now you're ready to throw the tree out the back door like a dead body. It's over. You're done with it, and it's time to get on with your life, and that's what Mary and Joseph are doing. It's typical. They're going to get on with their lives now. Joseph needs to get back home. He's a carpenter. He has his own shop. He needs to get back to work. Mary has kids and a family and everything to do with that household. It's time to get back to life as usual, but for Jesus, there's no such thing as life as usual. Mary and Joseph are looking for him, looking everywhere for him. And that just blows my mind. Where are they looking? Where did they look? They looked for him apparently for days, and then they find him at the temple. Where did they look? This is what puzzles Jesus. Why did you even have to search for me? Where did they go? Go like to the arcade? They go to the playground? Or they go to the mall looking for Jesus? Where did they think he would be? But they find him right there in the middle of the teachers and the students listening to God's word. And he says, why did you even have to search for me? Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? There are two ways to translate what Jesus says. What Jesus says is actually very, very vague, but also very particular. What he says is, didn't you know that I would be at or about that of my father? Which means it, it, it absolutely would apply to my father's house, but also about my father's business. What Jesus is saying, didn't you know that I would be about the things of God? You should know where to find me. I would be exactly where God's business is taking place. And this is Jesus' rebellion. Do you see that? Jesus is rebelling against the kind of religion that gets a little bit and then has enough. Jesus is rebelling against the kind of faith that allows you just to get a little bit of it and then to get on with your life. 
And honestly, many, many people who fill churches every single Sunday, people like us today, many, many people who go to church every Sunday, this is the kind of religion that they like. Religion to a point. For, for some of us, it's just the point of Sunday morning. And when Sunday morning noon rolls around, we're done. And we're back to our life as usual. We've got just enough religion to make us feel good about ourselves, but not enough to actually make us change the way we talk or act or live or, or treat our spouse or talk to our children. Do you understand? It's religion to a point. And this is what Jesus rebels against. There's no such thing as, as, as moderated faith. Do you understand? It's all or nothing. And this is the point where Jesus is all in. Didn't you know that I am going to be about my father's business? I'm going to be in my father's house. My father is all that matters. Now just think with me a moment. What would your life be like if the only thing that mattered to you were the things that mattered to God, how would your life be different if your faith was something more than just attending church on holidays or maybe on Sunday morning? What if, just what if, you became completely, totally about the Father's business? It's a kind of rebellion, isn't it? It would make you uncomfortable because automatically you would stand out from others. And many of us don't like to do that. Honestly, in worship, some of you would love maybe to raise your hand sometimes or just really to sing out. Or sometimes at the end of the service, you'd like to come forward to pray. But you don't move because you're really, really worried about what people will think of you. Don't you understand? This is the moment in Jesus' life when he begins to take his stand for the Father, and it no longer matters what people will say about him. He's not going to let his relationship to his heavenly Father be shaped by other people's schedules and expectations. He is 100% totally belonging to his Father. What would your life be like if you rebelled like that? Your father and I have been worried sick, Mary says. We've been searching for you in pain. Where have you been? Why have you done this to us? And Jesus says, why did you search? Did you not know that I would be about my father's business? Notice that's the phrase he uses to describe what he's doing. And what he's doing is sitting there in a circle of people who are studying God's word. And that is what he calls my father's business. It was a full-time job for Jesus to learn, to listen, to be in touch with the Father. It's interesting, you all know the Great Commission, it says, in the words of Jesus, to go ye therefore into all of the world and make, what's the word? Disciples, to make disciples of all nations, to make disciples. Remember the word disciple means learner. Make learners of, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe, to obey all things that I have commanded. Isn't that interesting how we're all about the baptism part, but we're not all about the teaching part. I guess that's the great omission and the great commission. We really don't think about the teaching part and how once we're baptized, once we come to Christ, our full-time job becomes to learn, to learn so that we can obey this is the example that Jesus sets for us in this story, and he's only 12 years old. But notice what he does. He seeks out. He seeks out a circle of people who love God's word more than anything, and he plants himself in the middle of that. 
No, that's a place to start, my friend. You say, well, Brother Tim, you don't understand. I'm not that smart. I don't know that much about the Bible. You don't understand, my friend. It's not about how much you know. It's not about your knowledge. It's about being teachable. It's about having some sort of curiosity or hunger for the things that belong to God. And honestly, some of you just don't have any of that. You have no curiosity, no hunger. You have no deep desire. And that really makes me wonder if you know God at all, if you know Christ at all. Because Jesus says you shouldn't even have to look for me. You're going to know that I'm going to be in my Father's house about my Father's business. It should be true for you and me. You should find a group of people who love God's word and put yourself in the middle of them and listen to them. That might be a church like this one. It might be a a small group Bible study, a Sunday school class, something like that. But you need something like that in your life. You need that. You need to be learning and listening. And that's what Jesus does. And he's the son of God. But he puts himself in the circle of other learners, and he listens. The scripture says he listened. And he also asked questions. Again, it's the puzzling part. Even Miss Manisha's children's sermon this morning, it just makes my head want to explode. I don't know. Did Jesus know all the planets? Of course he created them. Did he have to go back and learn the names? I don't know. I don't know. But the scripture says plainly he learned. He learned. And the scripture says in this circle with the rabbis, he was asking questions. I know that some of us don't know many of the answers. We'd never want to be on Jeopardy or even a Bible trivia game with third graders. We don't want anything to do with that. We don't feel like we know the answers. I'm telling you, knowing the answers is not nearly as important as asking the questions. The real deep poverty in your spirit doesn't come because you don't know the answers. It's because you're really too lazy to ask the questions. It's because nothing in your life ever makes you raise your head and look to the Lord and begin to asking the questions that matter. Questions of value about your life and about eternity. You don't ask the questions. It's not that you don't know the answers. You don't ask the questions. And that is why your life is in such trouble. Jesus found a circle, he listened, he asked questions, and he gave answers. And the teachers were amazed at his answers. The Bible says of all of the things that Jesus learned, most important thing he learned was obedience. Again, remember, Jesus was fully God and he never sinned, which means he lived a life of full faithfulness, full obedience to God and to his parents. A life of full obedience. He learned to obey. You have to listen to what God says first before you can begin to obey him. But that life of listening and that life of obeying, it it is the life that we are called to as Christians Scripture says that Jesus grew in knowledge and grew in grace and grew in favor. And truly, in your life as a believer, you're supposed to be growing. You're supposed to be learning more and more about God and about his ways, more and more about what he wants you to do. And it should be your joy. It should be the joy of your life to obey him, to do what he says, to learn obedience. Maybe you've heard of Henry Blackaby. Henry Blackaby is the the great teacher who wrote the the study Experiencing God. Amazing man of God and an amazing teacher, but also a pastor. Henry Blackaby tells a horrible story of his first pastorate. 
And it was the very, very first funeral he preached. Young Henry Blackaby's first sermon he preached was the sermon of a funeral at a three-year-old girl. Three-year-old girl. The little girl was the very first child of her parents who were in the church. The very first grandchild on both sides. This little girl was loved and adored and spoiled. Very spoiled. And we tend to laugh at that, but it wasn't funny. This little girl was very spoiled at three years old. If her parents told her to sit down, she would stand up and then she would giggle and laugh and just laugh at him. You know what the parents would do? They laughed too. They thought she was so cute. She was just so adorable. You couldn't bear to make her obey. And so this little girl just ran rampant, roughshod over her parents. If they told her to be quiet, she would shout. Whatever they said, she did the opposite. So spoiled. And they never, ever even tried to control her. Can you guess where this leads? They left their front door open one day. Little girl rushes out the door, both parents screaming, stop, stop. She turned around in the driveway and looked at them and laughed. She was cute, ran into the road and was killed. He preached that funeral. And he said that he carried that memory of that funeral all through his pastoring years because it was that little girl who was a constant reminder to him of the importance of learning to obey. And if you're wise, you learn to obey early. You've got to be able to hear God's voice because sometimes when God speaks, you're going to have to do what he says. And there will not be time for you to stop and bargain with God or stop and question or try to figure out if you're actually hearing him. You've got to know his voice. You've got to walk with him so closely that you can hear when he speaks and understand what he's asking you to do. And then you obey immediately. You obey immediately. This is the life that God calls us to. And honestly, it's a life of joy. It is the life where everything you're searching for is found. It's where you'll find your satisfaction, where you will find the peace that your heart craves. It is in that life of listening to God and obeying him. He only wants to bless you. He's not trying to take away anything good from you. He only wants to give you everything good. But if you won't listen, if you will not walk in his ways, your life is headed for disaster. If you're not listening and not obeying him, you've got to understand your life in this life and in the life to come, you're headed for disaster. Jesus learned obedience. He learned it in the Father's house. He learned it by putting himself wherever there were people who loved God's word. And he put himself in the middle of God's word. And he fed on it like bread for his soul. And that is the example that you and I must follow. Most of you in this house, they would call yourselves Christians. If 12-year-old Jesus was already learning to grow in wisdom and favor and grace with God and people, you should be growing also, shouldn't you? Shouldn't you be further along already than you are now? What are you doing with your life? Why aren't you learning? Why aren't you studying? Why aren't you going deeply into God's Word? Because understand, it's not just that Jesus' purpose was to come and go deeply into God's word. This is what he does. This is his time of preparation. But his mission is to go deeply into God's word and then to go deeply into the world to save all of us who were lost and far away from God. That's the kind of life he calls us to. We are to go deeply into God's word, deeply, and then far into the world to bring others back to be close to the Father. When Jesus was in God's house, he found himself completely at home. 
When Jesus heard God's word spoken, preached, taught, debated, he heard the familiar words of his father. He listened. He learned to obey. This is the example for your life and for my life, my friends. Encouraging this coming year to rebel against those who are just religious to a point. Resist that incredible pressure from our society to be sort of politely faithful and mildly and blandly Christian. Why don't you see what happens when you give your whole heart to the Lord? Why don't you see what happens when you give your whole heart, your mouth, your pocketbook, everything that belongs to you? What might happen if you would give all of that to God? What would happen if your priorities changed so radically that nothing mattered in your life more than the things that mattered to God? What would your life be like? What would your marriage be like? What would your children turn out to be? Brothers and sisters, this being religious to a point is what is keeping your life in the spot where it is. You're never going to grow. You're never going to know the full blessings of God. You've got to learn who your true father is. You've got to let him whisper into your ear your true name. You can't look to the world to tell you who you are and who you're going to be. The only person who knows the person you're created to be is the God who made you. You're in his house now. He's speaking to your heart now. Listen and learn to obey. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, truly, some of us might be children in your family, but Lord, we are spoiled children. We do not listen or obey. When you try to correct us, or when you try to instruct us, Lord, we laugh and we go on our way as if you don't matter, as if you do not have the authority to command our lives. Lord Jesus, I pray today that you would help us as your children to begin growing up. Growing up, Lord, growing into our identity as sons and daughters of the Father. Growing into the depths of all of Scripture and all of the things that you want us to know so that our lives can be blessed. Lord, I pray today for all of the Christians in this house, Lord, all of the Christians in the sound of my voice who are living lives of, of moderate faithfulness and measured devotion. Lord Jesus, help us to abandon ourselves in your presence, in your word. Lord Jesus, truly some of us don't really know who we are, even as Christians. Some of us don't know what we're called to be. We have no idea where our life should be leading us. Lord Jesus, I pray that once more today we would find ourselves able to hear the voice of our Heavenly Father. Let us listen. Let us obey. Lord Jesus, I pray for the one in this house who's never learned to listen, who's never ever once given themselves over to you to be your child, your adopted daughter, your adopted son. Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they begin their journey into your family. Lord Jesus, truly we want to sit at your feet and as the world rushes by and passes on, Lord, we want to remain here in your presence at your feet, learning, listening, loving you. Lord, let us stay. Let us listen. Let us learn. Let us love you more than anything. We pray in your holy name. Amen.